and uh, let me run with stuff that you may not have, should have, <laughs> but I'm, I'm just incredibly thankful. Um, I'm thankful for my parents and uh, my in-laws and my sister being here and their support and love through the years being here. Um, but I couldn't have done anything without the love of Lindsay, my wife. To show up Sunday mornings, having dressed kids by herself and one with special needs and who has a lot of attention and to trust me with go, or going away with teenagers and helping them and then she'd taken the kids for such a long time and um, the things you weren't able to do because... I was at church. I'm incredibly thankful. I am. I had got nothing on, on what you have meant to me, and your support. So thank you. As I was preparing for this message, um, I thought back to several of the things I did, uh, sermons I gave, and. Uh, if you know me, I, I stick pretty strictly to the lectionary when I preach. And that's because, for two reasons, really. If I, um, if I chose the passage often, uh, you would hear just a steady thing of the same message over and over again. And it would be an anemic diet of my preaching. But I think the lectionary is really helpful and, and points us and gives us attention to uh, so many passages of Scripture that we wouldn't otherwise but I have gone a different way, and I've chosen this passage for this morning. And I actually think it's a passage of scripture that is extremely important, but the book of Revelation doesn't get much run in the lectionary. And so we're going to spend some time in the book of Revelation. Um, one of my favorite things in youth ministry was uh, in my second year, um, uh, I was uh, in Sunday school and, and leading it, just the high schoolers. Uh, Nico Garcia had the junior hires, the mid-hires. And uh, I asked uh, Grayson Kelly and uh, Alex Shoemaker and Ian Anderson, what, did you, what do you all want to do in Bible study? What do you want to study? I was like, let's go to the book of Revelation. And it was probably my, one of my highlights of, of teaching Sunday school was teaching from the book of Revelation. And, and learning it from their eyes and seeing what they saw and adding my own two bits into it. And uh, it was one of my favorite things. And for me, the book of Revelation is probably one of my favorite books of the Bible. And not a lot of people read it, and I understand why. It's a bit weird. It's frightening, some of the images in there, right? You've got beasts with all kinds of eyes and, and wings, and they're all shouting and singing, and, and there's so much, so much violence. It's a book full of violence, and there's austere beasts, and there's women riding dragons, and it's just really odd. But I think that's the beauty in it, is that the austereness of the passage of the book of Revelation it's not meant to scare us. It's actually meant to encourage us and to pull the curtain back on realities that are taking place even now. 
And so that's why we're going to jump into it, is the book of Revelation. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne, a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and looked, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. To you, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, singing with full voice, Worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. Book of Revelation comes at a time, it's written at a time where there is a lot of persecution taking place. Uh, the Roman Empire had a, um, a, a continual relationship with Christians in which some Roman empires were cool with them and let them live and others did not. And many of these Roman, empire, Roman emperors at great cost went and sought to kill Christians, these followers of Jesus. This book is written at a time when the Roman Empire ruled the world. And the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, reigned not because of some diplomatic relationship or the goodness of Rome, but out of sheer military might. The Roman Empire comes with this totalizing presence. Worship Caesar. Pay your tribute. 
or suffer the consequences. They were an extremely mm, conquering people. They conquered and they conquered and they held down their known world with harsh oppression. An authoritarian rule. And here, John, who is the, the visionary, the, the elder who's seeing this, is seeing into realities that, oh man, we are just blowing our minds, that are so beyond our imagination that they provoke us into trying to describe things in a deeper understanding that we may not have otherwise. He begins the book of Revelation by sending out these letters, seven of which, to different congregations throughout uh, the Roman world. Ways that these churches can come back in line, can, can grow of greater faith. And then in chapter 4, it's like this immediate right turn into this beautiful, just overwhelming vision of, of power and God's sovereignty. God is described as the one seated on the throne. And in it, you just see just the, the majesty of God the creator, and the power that the one seated on the throne has. And then there's these four very decorative animals flying around, and they're singing this song on loop. It, this, it, it, it goes like this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, is, and is to come. And that song just gets played on loop forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And in that midst, John sees the scroll, sees God's plan for salvation for all creation, for all that God had created. John sees the scroll that is written on both the back and the front, which is kind of unusual in the ancient world. It usually just was written on the one side. This is a, a clearly a very intense plan that God is going to unfold in the world, and yet John witnesses no one able to open it. No one above the earth, on the earth, on the earth is able to enact God's salvific plan. And he weeps bitterly. You ever been in that space where you're in a situation and you, you just don't see the way through? That there is no hope? It just feels like you're just turning your wheels in the mud and all you can do is weep. Overcome by sadness, overcome by despair, stricken with grief, feeling like there's no way out of, of what feels like just a, a, a totalizing despair. Is this last 12 months has not been easy for us. And in fact, like if, I, if I'm honest, I, I leave this place with sadness at what has occurred in, to us, with us. That this is not the way it's supposed to be. 
And then John is here weeping bitterly. And one of the elders just kind of next to him says, don't weep. See, the lion of Judah, the root of David, is here and can open the scroll. What John hears is different than what he sees. Because what he hears is the lion of Judah, the powerful, fierce, violent, strong, authoritative God is here in the midst and is going to make things right with ferocity, with just power and authority. The, the promised fulfillment of the eternal kingdom that the people of Israel had been waiting for, that, that God would set up this eternal kingdom in Jerusalem, that the Davidic line would reign forever. That's, that lion, that fulfillment is here in the presence that's what he hears. What he sees is a lamb as if it had been slaughtered, standing in the midst. C clearly, this is Christ. This is the one who suffered and died. And according to the song that is sung later on in this chapter, this is the one whose blood ransoms everyone. Notice how Christ here is worshipped, sung about, held in the same esteem as the one seated on the throne. That there is no division between the one seated on the throne and the slaughtered lamb. They are worshipped as the same. The song is about them. Worship of them. Worship of their power and their creativity and their wealth amongst the whole creation. This is powerful in this early church period in which there was a choice. Are you going to worship God, Yahweh, Jesus? Or are you going to worship Caesar? Are you going to bow a knee to Caesar and Caesar's power and authority, escaping violence? Or are you going to follow the slaughtered lamb? The, the song suddenly, when the slaughtered lamb comes into the middle, there's a, like a record scratch. I don't make a good record scratch sound, obviously. And a new tune starts. And it start, it's the song, The Slaughtered Lamb is the one who ransomed everyone. All people, every nation, every tongue, every people are redeemed by God. Which for a Jewish Christian would be like, oh, yep, yeah, okay. Like, I thought this was kind of just a Jewish thing. Like, this is the Messiah, right? Root of David, Lion of Judah. But here in this worship song, you see that it is opened up to every tribe, every nation, every people. That there are no human constructs that keep God's grace away. God's love, 
God's redemption is not held back by human boundaries. All are brought in. The table is open for everyone. It's that totalizing fear of the Roman Empire. We have to be in this way. We have to bow the knee to Caesar so that we don't die. What's really interesting is that, like, and this outlines it, is that Christ is the sacrificial love here. The sacrificial lamb. And yet, we have to wonder at times, why? Why is Christ crucified? He's crucified on a Roman cross, betrayed by his own people. What was it about Christ that, on down the line, caused this ending? As early as Mark chapter 3, when Jesus, uh, by the faith of his friends, heals a paralytic man, that the, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees plot to kill him. Jesus wasn't crucified because he was a nice guy. He wasn't crucified because he had really good wisdom. He did all those things. But he was crucified because he was a threat. He was a threat to the status quo of power and the system that had been set up to privilege certain people and not others. To keep people outside and not inside. To keep people away from God or at least set up enough uh, barriers so that we can make money off of it. That's the whole thing in the temple. When Jesus is overthrowing uh, those money exchangers. Christ comes in and turns the kingdom upside down. Turns this idea, this expectation of what God does upside down. And it's that, it's that grace. We, uh, you see this, this multitude. You see this people that have come from every tribe and tongue and language that look just all different from one another. And when Jesus hears, or excuse me, when John hears the song that is sung, you get this zoom out, right, in the text. It's suddenly the, the camera pans open and you see just millions of people, myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands of people that don't look the same who are seeing God's praise. That faith is not just one thing. That it is a multitude. It's a diversity. It's a difference in holding that together because what unifies the people is not what we look like or the language we speak. But what unifies us is the worship of the slaughtered lamb, the one who is sacrificed because of his resistance to evil. He resisted an evil system. He inaugurated a kingdom, the kingdom that honored everyone. That brought people in who were broken and hurting in need of healing. Who the system had kicked out or disenfranchised. It is the Christ who is so resistant 
to evil. That it, it threatens authorities and brings Jesus to the cross. And yet, death doesn't hold Jesus. He's resurrected from the dead. He is the lamb who looks as if he's been slaughtered. He's been slaughtered and lives. That is the grace that this multitude of people have stepped out in faith in. Their allegiance is to the slaughtered lamb. In preparing for today, uh, um, I went back to some sermons that my grandfather wrote. My grandfather was uh, a Nazarene pastor, pastored for many years. At, uh, it was Bellflower Church of the Nazarene, but now it's Cerritos Church of the Nazarene. Um, but that was his second career. He was uh, educated first as a mathematician and uh, got his doctorate in education from USC and spent so much time in kind of the higher education uh, system and then kind of his second career became a pastor and was ordained and, and served as an associate pastor in, at Cerritos Church of the Nazarene. And I was flipping through some of his stuff and I have made myself the unofficial uh, archivist of his work and his sermons. And uh, I stumbled on this and it speaks to exactly what is happening here in Revelation chapter 5. It says this. He writes this. By the way, he writes this in September of 1991. This is some 30 years old, this insight. The church is not a religious industry to turn out mass-produced reproductions on assembly line. The God we serve is a creative God of infinite variety. The Bible wasn't written to turn us into cookie-cutter Christians. God has made each of us unique. His only pattern is His Son, Jesus. Grace finds pleasure in differences, encourages individuality, smiles on variety, and leaves plenty of room for disagreement. Such grace releases others and lets them be. The other strong and destructive tendency we Christians sometimes exhibit is to control others. That totalizing spirit. They get their way by manipulating and intimidating. They use fear tactics, veiled threats, and oblique hints to get their way. Controllers are often insecure in themselves and don't know the first principle of being free. So naturally, they are uneasy with your or my being free. So they try to force their demands and will on others. Controllers will win by intimidation. They bully their way in as they attempt to manipulate us into doing their will. They are first-class, number one, grace killers. You see, we have a choice. We can worship the God who is the slaughtered lamb, who opens wide this nonviolent way of seeking justice and truth in the world. 
that cares about everyone individually and us collectively as the whole kingdom of God. Or we can bend a knee to Caesar, enacting that same bullying, intimidating pattern of life, that same control. In a lot of ways, control is the opposite of grace. And this, what we see in Revelation 5 and what we see throughout the book of, uh, of Revelation is that Christ is revealed as the one who is doing the work. And we participate in that grace. As the Church of Nazarene, one of the fundamental aspects of our, of our theology is our radical understanding of grace. That there is no place that grace can't get to. And we do that. We embody that. We, we have faith in that by holding such grace with each other. If we are to follow the slaughtered lamb, if we are to have a hope and a future holding forth all of those things, it's following the slaughtered lamb, the one who holds grace in this fashion. Because more more than, uh, than what Jesus talks about love, and Jesus talks about love a lot throughout the Gospels, he talks more about faith. A faith that is in God, a worshiping of God, of, of paying allegiance to God, pledging ourselves to God. Having that image that is in us, that looks like Christ, shaped and molded but what God desires, not what the world desires, not what Caesar wants, not the control therein, but to be able to step back and know that God is at work. Because that is ultimately where our hope lies. If we are to mimic the slaughtered lamb, if we are to be found in that myriad of myriad of people singing the song, we're going to look like Christ. We're going to follow after the slaughtered lamb. And it's that power in which we're called into, which takes whew, resisting those evils, resisting those temptations to control, resisting those that bullying spirit, that totalizing spirit. To acknowledge that people are not just the one story. That they are a multitude. It's the same, it's the same slaughtered lamb who invites his disciples on the last night that they're together to a table. To foreshadow what is going to take place not just a few hours later. Invites them to the table, which we now enact, we embody. Because what Christ does at the table sets the pattern for how we are to live together equally, always having an open spot, knowing that there is plenty of difference and diversity amongst us 
But that doesn't mean that we're not following the same God. What unifies us is our worship of the slaughtered lamb, the one who has come resisting evil and embracing the good, holding open for us a way of faith in which we are enabled to love, to have mercy, and seek justice. Not just for ourselves, but more importantly, for those that we share space with. Those we love, and then those that it's really hard.